0: Jess asked me some time ago to speak this morning. I was thrilled because I miss all of you. And I miss being in a place that is a bit more dialogical than monological, and that connects at deep places. Um, Little did I know that the 26th of November would come three days after my father died. Um, And some people might think it very strange that I would still choose to speak. Um, But I trust that you are a community that can accompany me and be in conversation this morning. So, please join me in prayer. Living Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would hide me in the shadow of the cross, that you yourself would be seen and heard. Amen. When my dad was at his best, he loved really well. And I learned how to love from him when he was at his best. And when he was at his worst, God the Father loved me well. And God the Father taught me how to love when people hurt you very deeply. Um, two weeks ago, I was going to my job at the Henry Nowland Society in Toronto, which meant that I could stop at my parents' place. So I had a visit with my dad two weeks ago. and. Uh, He started telling me that he was very afraid for my oldest sister. Uh, She has a a Buddha statue in her office. She has crystal bracelets on her arm. And there was a little too much new agey stuff going on for my 87 year old father. And he was concerned for her salvation. Of course, an expression of a father's love. And I said to him, and their relationship, like all of his six children with him, was kind of bumpy, because when he was well, he was well, and when he wasn't, he wasn't. And I said, Dad, have you ever stopped loving her, even when she put up boundaries for her own health, Dad, Uh, and even though she lived next door to you, didn't over very much. Of course, he said, yeah, I've I've always loved her. I said, Dad, do you honestly think you're more loving than God? (laughs) If you could keep on loving her, do you not think that she is enfolded in the embrace of a God who sees her as beloved no matter what she's done or even no matter what she believes. I would like to tell you that my father had this great epiphany in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) But my father was 87 and Frisian. (laughs) But when I looked at the lectionary reading, particularly of course the gospel reading, for this Sunday, it just struck me, that was the conversation I had with my dad. That my father had what was, in many ways, a very beautiful faith, a simple faith, but also a faith that um, sometimes ends up on a bumper sticker. God said it. Uh, believe it, that settles it. And my father had been taught through the Hecht de Kerk in the Netherlands of a God who chose, chose people to go to heaven and chose people to go to hell. What a fucking mess of a theology is that? Excuse my Dutch. (laughs) And I grew up um, encountering the fruit of such toxic theology. But it came from passages like this. And so I want to talk about just two things this morning I want to talk about protest and practices. Over the years, I tried to have a lot of theological conversations with my dad. And on one hand, he really liked it because he was very proud of all six of his kids and he was proud that we were smart. If you feel like you're getting the practice run at the eulogy, thank you for being gracious with me. (laughs) Um, My father immigrated and so he had an eighth grade education. And so even though he grew up in a church that didn't believe women should be in ministry, he was kind of secretly proud that I became a preacher. We would talk about theology, and he would inevitably kind of hit a wall. And I don't think he ever realized how much he hurt me when he said, yeah, I've unfriended you on Facebook because I'm sick and tired of all that LGBT and Richard Rohr stuff. And that was like seven years ago, so... My father missed a lot of my life, considering most of us kinda keep up with each other through social media platforms. But this theology that held him captive was so energized by this deep fear around election. I'm working for the Henry Noun Society, so you know you're gonna get a Henry quote. Henry said, fear-filled questions will never lead to love-filled answers. And so even though my dad had this deep, abiding faith, it was hard for him to get to very generous, love-filled answers because he started out with fear-filled questions. My mother died when I was 16 months old and I have no memories of her. She was 25 years old and she left two daughters behind. So I asked, would ask my dad. Uh, when, when my sister turned 40 and I did some research, I found out that between diagnosis and death was only three months. So I asked him, you know, how, how did you deal with that with God? And I'm still kind of pissed off when I think about what he said. He said, we accepted it. And I wanted to say, are you serious? I did say, are you serious? I wanted my dad to say, we wrestled. We shook our fists at God. How can you be loving and leave a little girl behind who has no memories anymore of who she is and where she came from? But my dad said, we accepted it because God is sovereign and that's how my dad was raised. And in some ways, maybe there's something beautiful about that, but I would say to my dad, dad, you do understand that even our English translations, our interpretations, like some human being had to look at a word in an ancient language and decide what English word should be used to help us understand. And they're human. And not one of us has a perfect pipeline to God, Dad. And so we need to have a way to engage the scriptures that don't lock us in to interpretations that are nothing like the character of God that we come to know through the spiritual practices that bring us into awareness and communion. Now, I grew up in a home where we read uh, the Bible and our daily bread, That one was for you, Janelle. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. At at lunch. (laughs) And dinner? And dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And if you're lucky at school. And so you'd think that this kind of consistent, faithful practice would have deposited a depth of faith in us. And we hated it made us late for Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) 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 And if you had to go to the bathroom, it didn't matter. You had to like sit through it. My father had these practices that were so faithful, much more faithful than I've been through my life. (coughs) But I have come to understand spiritual practice as something that awakens us, causes us to be alert, to see those things which mirror to us a God who is creator, a God who is sustainer, a God who is making things right, a God who loves beauty and loves beautifully. And then spiritual practice draws us into communion. Once we've been awakened, we, we come into this deep, intimate place of connection. So we know. My first degree is a phys ed degree, hard to imagine. I don't know, that stuff about the fat sheep made me a little <laughs> worried. Um, but what I know from studying phys ed is that you exercise and you train and you practice and something becomes muscle memory. So that when you want to be at your peak, you don't have to think about anything. You, It's such a part of you that you live it out with Intensity and intimacy. And so, devotions, quiet time, reading our daily bread, doing it twice a day, didn't do it for me. But, coming into a practice where being awakened to the presence of God and then believing deep in my gut that I could commune with this, it's Christ the King Sunday, with this king of kings, creator of everything, that there was an intimate nook under the shelter of the wing of our father, parent, mother, God. And it's in that place of practice that protest arises because you're safe enough And you're united enough. And and you know. I think one of the travesties of bad theology is that we no longer trust our own spirit. Or I would just say our own gut. We don't trust it anymore if it doesn't line up with what we've been told. And yet all through the scriptures we see people protesting. Saying, God, that's not you. You can't destroy a city, twin city. What if there's a hundred faithful people there? Abraham goes down to what? Ten, right? Why didn't he go down to one? Why didn't he say, if there's one? Because Jesus told a parable about one sheep, since we're on to sheep on Christ King Sunday. There is a pattern of protest. And so I would say to my dad that every interpretation of scripture has to be tested by whether it's Christ-like. And how do we know what's Christ-like? Well, we begin by looking at the life and ministry of Jesus and what did Jesus do and say and who did he relate to and how did he relate to them. But we are fed by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And it is actually, in the Greek, an ever-flowing stream of words that come out of God's mouth. Well, how does that happen? Well, through the presence of the Spirit as we awaken and commune with the presence of God. That we know, that we know, that we know... that a God who teaches us as an overarching ethic, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, to love our enemies, doesn't then get to turn around and burn them forever in hell. That makes no sense even. How can we pin our theology on that? And so we protest and say, okay, that's what it looks like on face value, but there's gotta be something else going on here. And then there are people who have spent their entire lives in profound academic study who can help us out. And we understand, oh, this is like a parable, not a theological (coughs) teaching. And it's a parable that comes in a series of parables that are apocalyptic in nature. That have a certain overtone of judgment. Why? Because the gospel writer is particularly concerned with the persecuted church. This vulnerable, fragile in a way, early church that was being tormented, persecuted, tortured, imprisoned. They were hungry. They were sick because of the conditions they lived under being persecuted. They were imprisoned. All the things that Jesus is saying, the sheep looked after those needs of the persecuted church, but they had no idea. It came up and out of their being. Well, maybe because they practiced an awareness an awakening and a communion with divine spirit whatever they called it but there was something in them connected to the goodness of the divine spirit in the world that said don't stand by as people suffer don't stand by and do nothing when people are persecuted don't stand by and let people starve to death in prison because no one's bringing them anything to eat. Margaret Mead once said that she counted as the first sign of a civilization, a healed femur bone. Because it meant that 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 organism was cared for. Because normally, in a survival of the fittest, you break your femur bone, you're lunch for somebody. But a healed femur bone meant that someone cared for that being, protected them, fed them, tended to them. And Jesus in this parable is saying, if that which comes up and out is a connection to that caring, protecting, loving, nurturing, tending, goodness in the world, then you are with me. So this notion that this is somehow about individual salvation, look at the beginning of your text. In this parable, Christ the King has called the nations. Ooh, so there are nations who have awakened and have a deep, intimate communion with the divine presence that cares and protects and nurtures. So are there nations that don't? Both the sheep and the goats seem equally surprised by offering or failing to offer this deep care. So we might look around the world and say, "Mm -mm, well, there's some nations that seem to be missing the mark. (laughs) Yay, we get to feel this righteous, you're cursed, you're going to burn forever. A friend of mine has been, as an act of obedience and faith been deeply um, immersed in watching videos daily coming out of Gaza. And I confess I have not. As an empath, I wouldn't be able to get up off the floor. But he has felt called to do that and then to convey what he's seeing. And uh, I heard him preach two weeks in a row and the second week, it wasn't two weeks in a row, sorry, twice, but they were some weeks apart. And now this last one, last Sunday, he was like, you know, when I spoke a few weeks ago, I was, you know, nuanced. I'm not so nuanced anymore. The anguish, the horror, the just utter devastation. So then we kind of are like, yeah, yeah, some nations, yeah. And then, maybe, our protest needs to kick in again. Our protest, which recognizes that at the climax of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A God who lays out a blueprint of justice and mercy. First of all, it doesn't turn around then and be an unmerciful, miserable master. And we don't get to either. My father was 87, which sounds really old. Um, someone asked if he lived a good life. In many ways he did. He built a home for my mother and him at age 83, so that was pretty good. Uh, the last couple of years, he's been on oxygen and pretty much stuck in his Lazy Boy recliner, which he hated, and yet he fought for life. He was always dreaming, looking forward, and uh, and he always rallied. So in a way, when he died on Wednesday, it was a bit unexpected, which sounds just weird, I know, but... Um, I think I thought he would live forever. Not consciously, but... Because he was strong, and he was faithful. And now, without theological arguments with his daughter, he knows the fullness, and the extravagance, and the utter lack of stinginess. And the love of God. And my guess is that he's a little bit like the rich man saying, hey, could I just go tell my wife? (laughs) And could I say to my kids, sorry, I missed it a little bit? And God's saying, they'll get it. They'll get it because I'm awakening them and I'm inviting them into community with me. And your daughter's gonna get up at your funeral and tell them in a Calvinistic church and then run back to New Brunswick. (laughs)
1: Let's
0: pray. sometimes in little places deep within us. Fear or unbelief lives. Whether you can really be that good, whether you really are that loving, especially when we've heard teaching throughout our journey about the need for sin management, the need for holiness, the shoulds, on Christian discipleship. Even when we read texts like this morning, it can trigger uncertainty. And so we protest that this morning. That is not who you are. You look at us, and you call us beloved. And nothing and no one can ever separate us from your love. No matter who we are, what we've done, or even what we believe. And so deposit deep within us deep, deep faith. The kind of faith my dad had. Only maybe more generous, more bold, more confident, more sure. that there are no conditions and no limits to your love. In the midst of grief, there is gratitude. In the midst of struggle, there is deep. So now we go from this place back into the world. To proclaim the saving message of God in word and action, in challenge and compassion to all creation. And we go in the confidence that comes from knowing that Christ's limitless grace, God's infinite love, and the Holy Spirit's relentless companionship always encompass us and are always within us. May God the Creator, who made heaven and earth, bless us with creativity and wonder. May Jesus, who walked through fields and cities, bless us with kind hands and listening ears. May the Holy Spirit, who is around us and within us, bless us us with the courage to be caring and just. May we work and walk in the strong love of the Trinity, all our nights and days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. And may you <coughs> go with Wendy and her message. <laughs> Blessings to you this week. Theology.